morning, church. It's good to see y'all this morning. I send greetings this morning as well from Pastor Ryan. Him and a couple of the other pastors at our church are this morning right now at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. That's a great church. Good friends of ours have invited us to be a part of a conference for elders. And so they're going up there, the folks at... uh, Capitol Hill Baptist, Mark Dever and his team have a very healthy and strong church and model for showing other churches how to have eldership and how to do it well. And so he's up there and he says good morning to y'all. And um, I just wanted to say hello to the folks who were with us last night at our first Valor Social. Thank you all for coming out. Valor is a military ministry that we have here at our church. And we were able to last night have our very first social And so this is a community for military in our church to come together, um, be discipled, um, do outreach, and also drink some coffee. And so um, coffee's a big deal. And so thank you all for coming out last night. If you're interested in ministering to the military at our church, let me know. We're really needing uh, good folks who are able to love on our GIs and and all the awesome things that makes them awesome. I said awesome twice. That's okay. Um... As I was putting together my thoughts for this sermon this morning, I th- we're going to continue through Mark chapter 3. I was reminded of a story my wife and I uh, experienced, or maybe, I don't know if experience is the right word, but we had an event that happened to us in Hawaii. So anybody ever been on one of those uh, timeshare presentations? Y'all know what I'm talking about? So you try to get the discounted hotel price, right? It's like $200 for like five nights in like this resort. And obviously there's a catch. And so we were trying to save money. I think at the time we had like two or three kids, I don't know, a bunch of them. And so we wanted to stay at this resort in, was it Hawaii we wanted to stay at? Where were we at? Somewhere on the coast. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But we wanted to save money. And so we went to this presentation and we had a game plan going into the presentation. Y'all know how this goes. There's two hours you got to be there, right? And so the goal is to come out of there with no commitments made, right? And so the only thing I needed to do is stay there for two hours so that we can get our discounted hotel fee and get our, I think we had a gift card or something there offered at a restaurant in town. It was Hawaii. And we had a plan. We're going to say nothing. I got this. I'll talk. No, 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 no. Y'all with me? And then homegirl spoke up. And um, I don't know what it was. I think they mentioned um, gift cards to a, a shopping mall or something crazy. And then she start, they started to divide a little bit of our commitment to say no and to, to keep with no. And that's all they needed, man. And they just started to, and just like the good priest, you know, they're, they're salesmen, right? They're good at what they do. I hope anybody, anybody ever did that before? I hope not. Shame on you, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> but they, you know, they're just working at it, right? And the more they can get you to a yes, the better they are, right? And then before you know it, you know, my wife and I are sitting here arguing in front of the timeshare people. I'm like, look, I told you, you know, we're not going to do anything. She's like, wow, well, the, the, the cell isn't that bad, blah, blah. And so... They had done what we hoped they wouldn't have done. They kind of divided us in that place. And so we left mad. We still didn't sign any commitments, right, because we had the money to, to buy a timeshare, all right? 
But we were now kind of frustrated with each other, right? On vacation in Hawaii. Are y'all with me? It's just a bad scenario. And so the moral of the story is, if we can just stay united, goodness, how much we can accomplish. But understand also that there is an enemy who seeks to divide us. And so as we continue our sermon series through Mark, we're going to talk about just that. If you could please stand, we're going to Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 22 through 35. Mark 3, 22 through 35 reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they, up, they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent him and called for him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he asked them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that dwells within us, Father God. I pray that you would remove any distractions from us right now, Lord. I pray that you would bind anything against your will in this house. Lord, I thank you that you have delivered us from evil. We pray that you would continue to expand your kingdom through us, Father God. I pray that you would hide me behind this pulpit, Lord. Let your spirit speak clearly, Lord, and may souls be saved this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Our sermon title this morning is United in Christ. And if there's anything that I could leave you with today, it would be this, our main idea. That Jesus Christ has united us in cause, life, and eternity. Jesus Christ has united us in cause, life, and eternity. We'll begin reading in Mark Chapter, tw- chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And here's why we're going to go back to 20 and 21. Last week, Pastor Ryan concluded on these two verses. But it's important for us to kind of begin with a little bit of that context because the story continues from where he left off. And so I'm going to pick it up where he left off in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. 
And when his family heard it, they went outside to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So we know that his family thought he was crazy. They didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't understand the cause. But Mark here has placed this idea at the beginning of this pericope of Scripture. We're going to see again at the end of our section today in verses 30 through 35, Mark concludes on the same idea. His family's trying to get him. They think he's crazy. Are you all with me? So between the section of 20 and 21 where Mark shows us that Jesus' family is trying to come get him, and at the end, 30 through 35, again, they're trying to come get him, in the middle there is content that we need to pay attention to. Mark uses a technique called sandwiching. He does it about nine different times in the Gospel of Mark where he has one seemingly irrelevant idea and again, at the end of a thought, he has another idea that's tied to the first but in the middle is where he's trying to get us to focus our attention. Are y'all with me? Think of it as a sandwich. The buns are 21 and 20, or 20 and 21 and 31 or 30 to 35, and then the meat is passages 22 through 30. Are y'all with me? So as we begin, we're starting with the meat of the scripture. So it's important to understand the context because in the middle here, in verses 22 through 30, it gets a little murky. Are y'all with me? We're talking about binding things. We're talking about strong men coming into somebody's house. We're talking about Beelzebul, and, you know, it gets, a little, it gets a little murky, right? And so if we understand the technique that Mark uses to lay out this passage here, we'll see that Mark's really trying to focus us in on one thought and one idea, all right? So as we read through, kind of keep that in mind. Again, so we just read 20 and 21, Jesus' family thinks we're crazy or he's crazy. Now we're going to pick it up in 22. This is the meat, essentially, of this thought sandwich. Are you all with me? Y'all are giving me that look. You with me, brother? Don? All right. Beginning at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So we see here that the scribes came down from Jerusalem, which is interesting because they were actually north of Jerusalem. So the, the idea is that no one ever comes up from Jerusalem because it is a holy city, right? It is on a hill not only, but it is also the place where all prayers go. It's the place of the temple. So they came down, essentially, this is uh, the scribes, or excuse me, the scribes, through Mark, letting us know that Jerusalem is still the holy city and they've come down and it's just giving reverence to Jerusalem. And then a warrant was issued. The scribes were dispatched from this holy city because there was some trouble going on. There's this guy, he's saying that he can heal people. He's casting out demons. He's um, healing folks of leprosy. He's got all these things he's doing. Something's not right about this guy. And so they said, let's go down and check it out, all right? So they've been dispatched to come from Jerusalem because they're interested in what exactly is this Jesus doing? Who gives him the authority to do what he's doing? He's casting out demons. He's performing exorcisms. This is some scary stuff, right, y'all? So who is this Jesus that has the power to do this? And so they determined, well, of course, he is possessed by Beelzebul. This is the first time in Mark where religious leaders outright charge Jesus 
with a crime. Earlier, they would ask him questions. They'd say, well, you know, why are you doing this? Or why are your disciples doing this, right? They never directly came to him and said, ah, we know who this guy is. He's one of Satan's people. He is possessed by Satan himself, and he is one of his minions. It's interesting that they did this without seemingly having any evidence to present. It's interesting also that they did this without a judge and jury. Essentially, they were the religious judge, jury, and verdict givers of their day. They concluded that Jesus was possessed by a demon, therefore we need to make him go away. So this term Beelzebul that they use is interesting. It means Satan, but honestly, loosely, it means Lord of dwellings. And so they knew exactly what they were saying. It's also interesting that they mention Beelzebul, not Satan outright, because the Lord of dwellings, there's a key theme throughout all of these passages, and it's dwellings or house or place where people gather. We saw that with Jesus and his family. They met him outside of a house. Here we have the uh, Beelzebul, which is Lord of dwellings. Later on, we'll see him at the end of this chapter in a home. Mark has a lot of literary devices that he's using here. That um, it's, it's interesting to note when you study the text. So they concluded with the first charge that he is ruled by Satan. He's got Satan inside of him. But next, they went a little further and they said, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So not only is he possessed by Satan, but he's also working for Satan. They've attributed Jesus' ministry of exorcisms and his miracles of healing to sorcery. They thought he was a grand wizard of some type. They evaluated the evidence, they assembled a council, and they made their verdict. This is no different than what would happen to us should we ever be accused of a crime. There's evidence presented to a jury or to a district attorney or whoever, and then the charges are brought up against us, and then that information is presented in court. Right, sister? Is that how it goes? And then there's a verdict that's read. I read to my, looked at my sister there because she's a lawyer. And so they've concluded that Jesus is not only possessed, but he works for Satan and he's here to cast out demons, right? Very interesting. In the court of public opinion, Jesus was wrong. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, there was an admission, if we reflect back, on who exactly Jesus was. And it's interesting the individuals who admitted who Jesus was because it was Satan's minions themselves. And they said here in verse 24 of chapter 1, I know who you are. These are demons speaking. You are the Holy One of God. If you all remember, Christ told them to shut their mouths after that. Ryan went back and he explained to us why. Jesus told them to keep his name and his status a secret. But it's interesting that as we look at the scribes who have come down from Jerusalem, who have accused Jesus of being filled with Satan's or filled with Satan and working on his behalf, but we have demons a chapter earlier admitting that Jesus is the Son of God. The scribes are saying that he works for God, but the demons are saying, excuse me, the scribes are saying he works for Satan, but the demons are saying that he's the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? It's funny that in this Book, the first time we hear people or someone or something testify to who Jesus is, it's the enemy. Isn't that funny? 
I think it's interesting, and maybe it's just me. And so the scribes are missing what the demons themselves are proclaiming. Consider for a second the evidence before you. The scribes had a moment where they had a council and they had a holy huddle or something, and they said, all right, this man is casting out demons, he's healing folks of leprosy, he's doing all these crazy miracles, so he's got to be a bad guy, right? They, they made that decision. Okay, so let's think for a second, let's flip it. What has Jesus done in your life? What have you seen him do? Have you seen him restore marriage? Have you seen him, I don't know, remove an addiction from you? Have you seen Jesus heal someone miraculously? Have you seen the sun come up this morning? Did you breathe in and were able to exhale this morning without a ventilator? Were you able to get the church on your own? These are all small miracles, friends, that we take for granted. And you have a choice. Examine the evidence and determine who gets credit for that which has happened in your life to bring you to this place right now, literally in this church, or maybe even your place in life, maybe your marriage and where it's at, who gets credit for doing that? And if it's not Jesus, friends, then I would ask you, who gets the credit for doing so? Because he is real, and he has worked miraculous events before you. Don't be mistaken like the scribes and attribute his power to evil. Who is Jesus to you? Is he lunatic or savior? He can only be one or the other. Is he brother or is he enemy? Is he Satan's puppet or conqueror of hell? He must be one or the other. Our good friend C.S. Lewis sums it up in his famous book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend you download it, buy it, get it off Kindle, whatever you need to do. But in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he reads, or he writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying a really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one of the things that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. Who is Jesus to you? Luke chapter 9 verse 26 reads, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 through 26 read, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Revelations 20 verse 15 reads, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown 
into the lake of fire. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and his saints. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 reads, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us when our Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Depending on who you determine at the end of the day Jesus is, you will be on one side or the other of eternity. You have a choice. The information has been presented before you. Now you have to make a decision. And the decision will ultimately determine where you spend your eternity. When you get a chance to make that decision on who Jesus is, and perhaps today will be that day, will you testify and give credit to him? Will you speak of the wonders that he's done in your life, or will you give credit to another? Acts 4, 19 through 20 reads, But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Jesus is Lord indeed. And in verses 23 through 26, he makes this even clearer. And he reads, or, and Mark says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Jesus responds to them with his typical fashion with questions. I love how he does this. He gives us one question, two examples, and then he makes his point. The question is how can Satan rise up against Satan? The two examples he gives us in verses 24 and 25 is if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand, but also if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And his point in verse 26 says, if Satan has risen up against Satan and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end, brother. Three times he uses this word divided. Only here in Mark do we see Jesus use the word divided to symbolize and represent Satan's ultimate end, but also the ridiculousness of thinking that he could be working for Satan and doing the work of Satan as he's trying to rid the kingdom of Satan. Are y'all with me? It makes no sense. It's, it's, it's silly that he could be against Satan and form at the same time. In November 1860, South Carolina after Abraham Lincoln was elected into office, decided that they were going to succeed from the Union. Not long after, the first shots were fired on Fort Sumter, beginning the Civil War. The states were divided, folks picked sides, and before we know it, about four and a half years later, over 750,000 people perished. That's about 504 deaths per day. Approximately 2.5 of the civilian population, excuse me, the American population had died in this war. If that were to happen today, it would be about 7 
million people. Our country was split in two. The division was so strong that brothers literally killed brothers, relatives against relatives. Our union was split. It was divided. And because of that, we have lasting legacies of hate, bitterness, and even division still. Because Satan has a job to do, doesn't he, friends? And it is to divide. But Jesus has a job to do as well. And it is to reconcile. There are three implications from this passage that we just looked at. There's a principle, there's a reality, and there's an outcome. The principle is any kingdom divided will fall. It's true throughout all history, through Roman history, through Greek history, through any nation that's ever had a division, there's been failure. Amen? We can't stand together and divide it at the same time. It just can't happen. The reality is that Satan's kingdom is united. And yes, he does have a kingdom. And yes, they are united. They are united in cause. He is a tempter according to Genesis 3, 1 through 6, where he divides and tempts Adam and Eve. He separates them from fellowship with God. He tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He's a liar. We know that by reading John 4 excuse me, John 8, 44. He's a deceiver, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, as well as Revelations 12, 9. He is a murderer, according to Psalms 106, verse 37. He has also come to hinder God's people and God's kingdom. We know that from Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. But there is also, friends, an outcome. According to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Yes, Satan is real and he is busy, but there is a day, friends, where he will no longer plague God's people, tempt us, deceive us, and seek to divide the people of God. Is there division in your house today, friends? Make sure you blame it not on your husband, but on Satan himself. Is there a division in your business, in your neighborhood? Are you divided on some point? Is there division, is there division in our church? Is there division in our small groups? If so, we need to bring those things to light because just like that salesman at the timeshare presentation, if he can get a corner, then he'll make a lot out of it. And so it's our job as God's people to bring to light the darkness, the truth. There's no place for division in God's house. We are united and cause. As Jesus moves on in verse 27, he lets us know exactly who he is. Verse 27 is right about in the middle of this passage. So let's recall. We got our buns on each side, right? Y'all with me? We're in the middle of the meat. This would be the central point of the entire text here that Jesus is trying to make in verse 27. Mark does this 
beautifully, how he uses scripture to make his point. Paul does this a lot. If you've ever read Paul in the Greek, you could start to understand just how English just doesn't do us justice sometimes as we read God's word. It's very important to kind of catch these nuances. So anyway, in verse 27, he reads, um, or he writes, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Christ gives them this parable here, and it honestly, just for me to save time, I'm just going to give you some of the symbology here, okay, that we use. If you have your pen, it's good to write this down, but there are some things that you need to know. There's a strong man present, and that is Satan. There's also a house, again, we see this idea of a house being mentioned earlier with Jesus and his family outside of a house. Satan is the Lord of dwellings. We see again this idea of a house. But the house is the place where Satan's, or the world really, where Satan's sphere of authority expands. It's the kingdom of Satan. Then we have the possessions of Satan, which are those who have been demon Possessed those individuals walking around the world who have been captured by the spirit of Satan, those whom Jesus cast out Satan from. Are y'all with me? We saw this in Mark chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then he continues plundering of Satan's possessions. Well, that simply means that Jesus is casting out demons and saving those who were demon possessed. Are y'all with me? No one, that's Jesus, can do this unless they bind, which is showing that Jesus is stronger than the strong man. He has the ability to bind the strong man. The point is very clear. I am stronger than Satan. If I wasn't stronger than Satan, then I couldn't pull his demons out of people. I couldn't command them to shut up and their mouths clothes. I couldn't tell them to run into a flock of pigs and they do so. I'm stronger than them. Yes, they are here. It is a reality that we've experienced since Genesis chapter 3. And until Revelation 2010, it will be here with us. But oh friends, we have someone who is stronger than the strong man. Imagine for a second, well let me kind of give you a, a Jay's translation of this text here, um, verse 27. If we were to read it differently, it would say, I, Jesus, can enter Satan's kingdom and cast out the demons of Satan and save those who are possessed from the control of Satan because I am stronger than Satan. Let's say if you're getting picked on at school, okay? You're getting picked on at school. You got a bully that's picking on you. Um, let's say the bully is like, eighth grader and you're like a fifth grader. All right, y'all with me? You're getting picked on at school by this eighth grader, you're a fifth grader, and you go home and get your brother who's in the third grade to try to get you to beat this bully that's in the eighth grade. Does that make any sense? You're going to go home and get who? The big brother, amen? Because the big brother can do what? Can save you. The big brother is stronger than the strong man, right? And so as we look at Satan's role in our lives, we understand that he's got things that he's up to and he's got a job to do. But, oh, friends, we have an advocate who is stronger. And if you've experienced deliverance, then you know just what I'm talking about. 1 John 4.4 4 reads, Little children, you are from God 
and have overcome them. For he who is in you, finish it out for me, y'all, is greater than who's in the world. Absolutely. But we must still be aware. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we have not been waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Too often, and I do this, and I'm not going to sit here and preach like I'm perfect. We attribute the things that happen in our lives to just circumstance, to bad luck, to frustrations. And then we try to pick up physical, maybe secular philosophies to fight those fights, right? We just need to give it credit to where it is. It is Satan trying to divide us, keep us from God, and we need to pick up the weapons which God has given us to fight this war. We must be prepared to put on the full armor of God. Chapter 6 of Ephesians, verses 10 through 18 read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, again, stand firm. Verses 14 through 18 should be verses that we are thoroughly familiar with because they are the means by which we stand up against the enemy. We must resist him. First Peter chapter 5 verses 5 verses 8 through 9 read that we must be sober minded. It's interesting that Peter starts off with this instruction to be sober minded because if you are not sober minded friends you don't stand a chance. Not even a chance. Peter says be sober Minded, be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When temptation comes, friend, and when lust peaks up within you, when you're tempted to keep scrolling or you're tempted to pop another pill or you're tempted to pick up the bottle, when you're tempted to walk out the door and leave your wife, when the enemy comes between you and your God, your weapons are the word of God. You hit your knees, you pray for your spouse, you pull out scripture, you recite it to Satan, you stand firm. You resist him because greater is he that is in you, friends, than he that is in the world. We are not without the ability to fight this fight. We are not weak. Don't go around, oh, woe is me. I'm tempted. I'm lust is here and I can't stop this porn addiction or whatever. You have the power. You do. In Jesus' name, I just read it. Pick up your weapons, go to war. And men, if you don't, then your families will suffer. We have to fight. Everything is at stake. Everything is at stake. But there is an eternal judgment. In verses 28 through 30, Mark picks up the story. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Jesus gives us the eternal judgment of not only Satan and his minions, but those who ultimately continue to refuse the Holy Spirit. Those who continue to reject God's sent. Blasphemy is simply to slander or defame God, predominantly used in the New Testament to mean infractions against God. The sin against the Holy Spirit is the ultimate rejection of God. Steve Jobs is known for some great things, isn't he, folks? He changed our world. He revolutionized communication. He revolutionized social media. He revolutionized the tech industry. But even as he died from cancer, as it plagued his body, he considered whether God was real or not. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that it's a toss-up. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And he went to his death thinking that same thought. Friends, all the good, if you want to consider your iPhone good, all that he's done doesn't amount to a hill of beans in eternity. And I don't know what the end of the day was like for him. Maybe at some point he did, in his quiet time, confess Jesus as Lord. I pray that he did. But all I'm saying, folks, is that if he continued down that road, yes, God can use him to revolutionize the world and to bring in even the gospel preaching through the technology that he was able to, um, to create, just as the Romans created the Roman world, and through which that road we Learn the gospel and it was sent out through all the nations. God can still use a fool, friends, but at the end of the day, if a fool stays a fool, he doesn't get to heaven. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, we know from reading Luke chapter 16, and I don't have time to really go through and talk all the way about this story, but there was a poor man named Lazarus, and he was sick all of his life. He was poor all of his life. He was placed in front of this rich man's house, and the rich man would never really come out and give him anything. I think the dogs would even lick on Lazarus' wounds, according to Luke chapter 16. And this was relief to him. Do y'all understand how bad this man's life circumstances were? I don't know how bad things have been for you, but I doubt you've been so sick and, and poor and distraught that a dog's got to come and lick on your wounds to bring you relief. In this story, the rich man has rejected God. And so when Lazarus dies, he goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to heaven, and the poor man goes to hell. And as Jesus tells the parable, he illustrates the difference in not only space between Lazarus and the rich man, but also the desperation of the rich man in hell because he continued all of his days to reject God. You see, we are saved by grace through faith alone. Amen, friends? We believe in the gospel and we preach the gospel, don't we? If we're going to preach the gospel, we need to make sure that we clearly articulate what exactly we are saved from. 
because hell is real. It's all throughout scripture. Francis Chan, in his book, Erasing Hell, spends about 22 chapters explaining the importance of us fully articulating the gospel to include what we are not only saved to, but what we are saved from. We have to preach the full gospel, friends. If I continue and get ready to conclude in verses 31 through 35, we see we are now at the bun end of this pericope, of this passage. Again, we started with Jesus' family in 20 and 21 saying that he's crazy, he's loco, we got the meat, we came to the middle, we saw Jesus saying, I'm more powerful than this strong man, I have authority over all, I am here. And then we get here to the end of the story. And Mark says, and his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent for him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus said to him, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about that those who were standing around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, they are my mother, my brother, and my sister. It's clear here what Jesus is saying. Yes, I have a biological family, but friends, my true family are those who are children of God. We attribute children of God sometimes loosely to all of God's creation. Scripture says something different, friends. 1 John 5, 1 and 2, which is not in your notes, says everyone who believes in Jesus and calls Christ has been born of God, but ever, and everyone who loves God, the Father loves whoever was born of him. By this, they will know that we are children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Friends, if you love God and obey his commandments, then you are a child of God. If you do not love God and do not obey his commandments, you are not a child of God. You are a child of Adam. There's a difference. There is a difference. Your biological family is important, but your eternal heavenly family is the most important. When I was adopted, I was given a name. By actually before I was adopted, I was born and put into adoption. All right. My mother at birth gave me a name. It was Christopher. If anyone knows my oldest son, his name is Christopher. When I was adopted three months after birth, my mother who adopted me gave me a different name, Jadrian, by which I am now known forever as. Who has adopted you, friends? The moment that you accepted Jesus Christ into your life, he gave you a different name. No different than Saul becoming Paul. No different than Jacob becoming Israel. No different than whoever you are becoming who you are in Christ. Friends, your family in heaven is your eternal family. And that is the family by which we are called to be united to. As we Get ready to close. I would ask you again, friends, who is Jesus to you? And you have to make that decision. No one gets a pass in this vote. I think last night we played a game. Evan, are y'all here? 
There you are. And the game was a, it was fun because we did like charades and you could pick out the different scenarios. And if you wanted, you can actually toss it up, right? You could pass on that one. Well, this friends is not a question, is not a scenario, is not an opportunity that you simply get to pass on. You will at some point have to answer for who Jesus is to you. Is he Lord and Savior or is he lunatic? You decide. But if he is Lord and Savior, then with him you will dwell in eternity for heaven forever and ever. I would ask you right now as we begin to pray. If you've never placed your faith in God. If you've never committed yourself to Jesus. If you're tired of being plagued by depression, addiction, shortcomings, you name it. How about you try Jesus? Just try them, friends. What's at stake? What can you truly lose? He will deliver you. He will make you a new creation. Yes, you'll still be on this wicked earth with the toils of our age and all these other things that we have to deal with in taxes and whatnot. But friends, he will give you a purpose that supersedes the purpose of this world. So as I pray... I would ask you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you have delivered us from the evil one. We thank you that you are more powerful, that you are all powerful. And Lord, as we submit ourselves to you, we recognize and proclaim that you are the son of God, the risen savior who has come to not only deliver us, but all who believe in you. And so, Lord, we lay down before you now. We believe that you are the Son of God. You are our deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.